Welcome back to Return on Character podcast with me, Dan Cooper, founder and CEO of Rock Investments, an investment strategy that allocates capital into the public markets based on the character of CEOs leading those companies. Um, we have with us um, Jay Davis, um, and I'm very excited to have him because he's bringing a dimension to the world that I've longed to have a discussion about. Um, Jay is the founder and CEO of Hello Cube and founder of Creatable. 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 Oh, Creatable. I'm so sorry. Creatability. I just butchered that. Creatability. Uh, way, way, way to blur it up. Yeah. Hello Cube is changing the way people sleep. Creatability uh, provides explosive growth through disruptive startups. But the most interesting thing that I, I think about Jay is none of that. It's that he has four beautiful daughters that I've, I've heard. I want to hear all about them. Um, but welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on, man. I, I really appreciate having you and you giving us a bit of your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Maybe how I'd like to start is maybe give you context um, for the conversation. It, as it relates to how we normally look at the world. We, we look at the world from the standpoint of character and leadership is, under, is, is undervalued, oftentimes not valued at all, especially in the public markets. We look at four characteristics that we think make up character, which is integrity, responsibility, forgiveness, and compassion. And we look for character habits in our leaders, in our CEOs, and find evidence for that and, and basically measure it. Um, I'm really curious from your world, you are a venture capitalist. You've been incredibly successful. You've done a lot of really different things. I'd like to start off with hearing how you got started, uh, where you started from, and then maybe kind of blend into a discussion around character in the venture capital world and your observations, you know? Yeah, no, I'd love to. Tell me a little bit about yourself and your four daughters and then what you, how you got started in the industry that you're in. From probably the time I was 10 to 12 years old, uh, I knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Uh, I have a dad who's an entrepreneur, owned his own companies, um, and I just loved business. I, I always joked that as a kid, me and my dad talked about uh kind of three things was theology, business, and basketball. That was like the three interesting topics we jumped into. Uh, and my dad just talked to me like I was an adult. So I would ask, you know, you're consulting with Samsung. Why is Samsung winning? Why are they losing? And we just talked a lot about uh, business. And so even as like a 10, 12-year-old kid, I was getting these lessons in like business strategy, why that leader he thought was a good leader, why he thought that leader was a bad leader, um, you know. And so I, that was like a very interesting uh, experience where I just loved learning about business and companies and how do you start things. And then as I uh, got into college, I decided I really want to focus on more of that venture world, startup world. Uh, went to BYU in Utah, got a degree in business management with an emphasis in entrepreneurship. Uh, and then after I left, I graduated in 08, not a great time to graduate. So I ended up getting a job. I had a startup that was making some money, but I got, ended up getting a job 
uh, in Utah at a company that was growing very quickly. It was a regional um, security company, kind of um, home security. And they were making a lot of really big moves. And, and I got to work there doing product development uh, and really see a great entrepreneur. At the time, they were, went from about, I think they were doing about $100 million a year when I started. And when I left, they were doing about $400 million, $500 million a year. And they just sold this year for like $6 billion. So um, great experience seeing what a great entrepreneur does. He was not only a great entrepreneur, but a great person. Uh, and and while I was there, we rebranded from uh, your originally called Apex Alarm to Vivint. Uh, and they became the largest home automation company. Then they started their own solar company. They sold that for for a huge chunk of money. But what I love seeing, uh, Todd Peterson was the founder. I love seeing that Todd was not, it wasn't about that. It was about creating value. And he loved creating things that people, uh, impacted people's life and, and made their life better, solve their problems. So I think that was like a very kind of formative time for me. And I, and I got to observe a lot of great lessons. Um, they had a great team. Uh, and then I left and helped start uh, a race, a 5k race called the color run, which was the first kind of colored powder 5k. Uh, the founder of that was the first person to come up with that idea. And we, uh, launched it and it just went crazy. We did a bunch of viral marketing and I created a bunch of viral videos um, that just went nuts. And so I kind of dove into this viral side of entrepreneurial marketing. Uh, I left and helped start a YouTube channel with a friend. We did a bunch more viral projects. I did uh, another event company, like just kind of got into this world of like, how do you scale uh, a startup quickly? Uh, and then five years ago, I started Creatively, uh, and we focus on high growth startups and providing uh, profitable uh, revenue growth for them that's very predictable and helping them understand, especially if you're a disruptive company, how do you market in a u unique way? I think that's one of the challenges that disruptive companies have is they have this disruptive product, but it needs to be explained and it's hard to explain that, uh, especially five years ago. This is now, this is now much more accepted wisdom. But five years ago, when we were creating these long videos that were five minutes long, pitching a product, and they were funny and humorous, and they had this entertainment value, Facebook and YouTube even were like, "You guys are nuts! Why are you making five minute videos? Make make five second videos!" Because they really wanted people to pay for bumper ads. And I just really held on to this idea of like, if you're disruptive you need to tell your story differently. And so we're not going to market like how everyone else markets. Now, a lot of the world has shifted to see the wisdom in that and realize like, oh yeah, you do need longer videos to pitch a disruptive company. Um, but it's been a, it's been a good what experience. What are some examples of uh, disruptive videos that you, that you love? One, one of the ones that really worked really well that you, you're kind of most proud of. Uh, as we went through that, we ended up deciding to start some of our own companies. Uh, I was like, you know, we've helped all these companies grow and, you know, one of them had like a $1.5 billion exit. And so I started to say, I think we should do one of these on our own, not just for, for that reason, but more like, I would love to own more of that process. I'd love to build out the product. We, we got very, uh, into every, like most of our clients would always compliment us and say, you guys act like you're a 
co-owners of this thing. Like you're so passionate about growing our business. And so we eventually started something, started our own things. One of the things we started was Pillow Cube. That was the first one. And the Pillow Cube videos are great because they've, I think right now are sitting 700 million views, uh, uh, just crazy, crazy numbers. Uh, Pillow Cube in two and a half years went from an idea that we launched on Kickstarter to uh, the second most searched pillow online in the US. And the first uh, one? Uh, the first one is my pillow. Um, <laughs> yeah. So how so did you land on the pillow cube? Like, where did that come from? So it was just an idea I had as a kid. I I, I had a friend growing up who's Japanese, uh, and his mom just mentioned that. Uh, I can't remember exactly. I think it was like at a sleepover. But she mentioned uh, that outside of the U.S., pillows don't look like pillows. They're not pillow shaped. They're shaped like boxes and like in Korea, they sleep on buckwheat pillows that are in the shape of a cube. Uh, in Japan, they often sleep on boxes. And so that just like was very interesting to me. And then as I did product design and product development in the beginning of my career, I just kind of had this idea of like, what if pillows were more designed for ergonomics than they were for materials? And so creatively, I uh, was working on a couple of different projects for clients in that space. Uh, and we, as we were getting pitched by those clients to work with them, I just started thinking more and more. I'd had this idea of like a box shaped pillow. And then as I talked to more and more of these people, I just realized every bedding and kind of mattress company is mostly focusing on materials uh, and c customers really don't care. Like they don't care if it's made with foam or gel or whatever. They just want it to solve their problems. Uh, and, and there are times where those companies got it right because the, the material helps solve some of those ergonomic problems. But then the company never really learned that lesson of like what actually people care about is sleeping well, not that there's some latest, greatest new foam or, or, you know, eucalyptus fiber that no one cares. So, so yeah, that, so I just kind of had an idea. I took these two pieces of foam that someone had sent us. I put them together and laid down on a couch and was like, oh my gosh, that's the pillow of my dreams. And so I made it. So what, what year was that? And how, how, how has your revenues been growing and where are you at today? Yeah. So, uh, that was 2019. Uh, we ended up started selling, uh, in end of 2019, our first full year, we did $4 million. Our second full year, we did $28 million. Uh, and then our third year has just gone up from there. And now we're going into retailers and all, all of that stuff. So it's been a wild ride. Congratulations, Jay. So tell me, what do you spend most of your time doing now? Is it, uh, mainly on the pillow side of the business or is there other things you're focused on? Yeah. So I spend a lot of, like my main focus is, is running pillow cube and building that. I love still working. I don't, I don't spend a lot of time on the client side of creatively. I still work on, uh, some of that and, and help with people, especially when people, uh, are, are looking for really high level marketing issues. Um, I usually come in as an angel or as an advisor, um, and helping people understand kind of like why to, how do you think of those bigger kind of marketing problems and how do you solve them? I, th I think that that's really what the whole idea of creatively is, is, um, 
yes, we make videos, but really we use uh, our understanding of video and of social media to solve marketing problems because that's really what founders struggle with. Marketers are probably the least, I think they are the least represented uh, um, industry or field in the founder suite or the group of founders in the US. Like there's not a lot of marketers who are founders, not a lot of designers who are founders. They're usually finance guys, business guys, engineers. Um, and so it's a very common problem that people, founders are like, I don't, I don't know how to market this. Uh, you know, Y Combinator, I think a year or two ago said that was the, the number one thing their companies struggled with was they know how to make a product that's great and that solves a pain a lot of times and gets product market fit. But we always say most startups are struggling to find product marketing fit. They're just not quite there of how do we market what we do. So, so that's our specialty. And I, I love spending time uh, consulting with people and, and advising and helping. Uh, and then I love creating new products. So you've been in the uh, venture world. Let's pivot a little bit to the uh, character discussion. I've been having an internal debate with my friends and my, myself, honestly, which I've not really come to a conclusion on looking for smart people like like you to kind of help. And the premise is this, is that in a public company, a, it's, it's a, a well-established organization uh, that's looking to exist for a long period of time that isn't typically looking to exit. And consequently, there is potential alpha in identifying CEOs that have that or, you know, have a longer term orientation, more focused on character, integrity, responsibility, forgiveness, and compassion creating better organization and, and an implied advantage. In the venture world, you know, um, I'm not going to speak to your industry too much, but it's different, right? There's oftentimes an implied exit strategy that justifies the early investments and consequently a lot of pressure. Um, how do you think, let's say you had two companies squared and they were doing kind of the same thing, but maybe separate industries. You had one industry that was one CEO was a hard driving, you know, narcissist and another one that had super high character. How do you think they'd fare? And what's your, what's your thoughts on character adventure? Yeah, no. So I think, uh, I think it is just as crucial, if not in many times, maybe more so, but, but that's probably up for debate. I think it is so crucial. And I think We've seen a lot of those problems. I think in the last two years, uh, there's been a lot of case studies in what happens when there's too much focus on exits and just getting to an exit at all costs and solely focus on that. And so I look at the WeWorks and the, the fire festivals, and uh, there was one this, this month, Pollen, uh, that was worth a billion and then turns out they were spending all that money just on uh you know drugs and alcohol and living crazy party lifestyle it really weren't building a solid business and i mean uh what is it ftx uh you know uh another example so i i think that it's so crucial and i think that that's a huge lesson for the venture community of like an over obsession with results uh will yields these kind of situations like you start getting um people who just think that the that the ends justify the means 
Um, and I don't think that that's true. And so I think when you're as a founder, when I look at taking someone's hard earned money that they earned and they don't have to give me and they're investing in it, I really have to think about like, you know, what is my duty and responsibility to give them the best result I possibly can? Uh, and yes, it's, it's, you know, ventures more speculative, but that doesn't justify, uh, just spending it on whatever I want. I need to spend it to get them the best return ever. So, or the, or the best return that I possibly can. And so I think that the, that it is so crucial in venture. And I think we've hopefully the last year, even, even when you take out those extreme examples of like fraud and embezzlement and those kind of things, even just, I think we had too many people who thought this was a get rich quick scheme, especially in e-commerce. Um, you know, I'm being inundated with people who are trying to sell their company, trying to get rid of their company. They're like, I, you know, I thought I'd be a billionaire by now. And in most of those cases, it's people who jumped into the e-commerce world because they, they thought they were going to get rich, not because they are passionate and in love with the craft of building companies from scratch. And so I think when you look at those two different, like the differences there, you have a lot of people who are like, you know, I, I'm just going to go back to my job because I'd made more money there. Um, you know, I had a great job in whatever, and I was an expert and I had 30 years experience and I jumped into this because I thought, you know, we were going to be the next, uh, you know, all birds or the next whatever. Um, and now they're like five years in and they're making a 10th or a fifth of what they used to make. They're like, what am I doing? I'm going to leave. And I think a lot of that came from an over-focus on, uh, on the results. And then also on top of that, using VC money to create businesses in such a way that you never really knew whether it was actually working. I, creatively has people all the time who come to us and say, you know, we need your help. We're, we're trying to, you know, get our acquisition cost in line. And we've often had to tell those people, like, you actually don't know whether you have a business yet. Like, you guys are spending so much money to acquire a customer. You actually don't know if you have customer uh, validation, whether you have product market fit, because you're just using VC money to prop this thing up. And you guys need to learn as quickly as possible whether you actually have a viable business. And so I think now we're seeing this shift back where people are like, no, no, startups shouldn't just be focusing on building a company um, just to sell it. They should be trying to build companies that are going to last. They should be building companies that could be around for 100 years because that it's silly if, you know, most acquisitions don't work. Uh, something that the corporate world has largely ignored. Most, most companies that get acquired do not get assimilated in and end up providing a return for the acquirer. And so I think we need to go back to, I think that number would change if we were building businesses that could be viable, whether they get acquired or not. Um, I just saw something yesterday pointing out that like Bird is now worth, um, you know, $50 million and they raise 1.1 and uh, Wish is worth like $200 million and they raise $1.6 billion dollars. Um, and bird rate was 1.1 or $1.2 billion. And that, that to me, and this was the articles the the author kind of pointed out, like they weren't focused on, is this a net benefit to the world? Is this a net positive? They were just so focused on 
valuations and how do we get as much revenue as quickly as possible instead of are we building something that makes the world a better place and that provides true value to people uh, that really improves their life. But isn't isn't the uh, capital markets, I mean, the venture dollars and investors are almost affirming that kind of way of living in, in, in building companies? I mean, obviously, I mean, is that part of the problem here is that the actual seeders are not, they don't care. You know, they, they, they are just as motivated as the, say, entrepreneurs to get that payout. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the shift we're seeing. I mean, hopefully the investors are, are recognizing, hey, you know, if you wrote a $200 million check into Bird and you just realized that's now basically disappeared, uh, hopefully that's a wake-up call of like, we should probably change some of our thesis on how we invest and why we invest. And, and that's, there is a balance because like I said, startups have always been speculative. They've always been riskier. That's why there are 10,000 X returns at times. But I do think we went too far that like, I always kind of describe like most things are a pendulum and we, we need to seek more for equilibrium. And I think we went too far down the, everything's going to sell, everything's going to get acquired. Um, but when I look at the companies, you know, from the last round of like, call it 2000 to 2008, 2010, Almost all of those companies are went went public, and they are solid uh, businesses that produce a lot of value for their customers. They might have seen their valuations or or market cap go down a lot, but they're not going out of business. Uh, you know, they. I don't think anyone can argue that Amazon or Google or even Facebook, like Facebook's doing some interesting things that I don't necessarily agree with, like the focus in investment in VR. But you can't argue that like Facebook is a complete house of cards. It's the biggest ad network in the world. Um, so I, I think that is, I think we need to come back a little bit. And I agree with you that like, I think the, the investors are just as guilty of, hey, let's just go really fast and get a bunch of acquisitions. And it's like, at some point, the, you know, the, the acquirers are going to start saying, we don't need to buy all these because none of them are turning into anything. They're not, they're not providing a return for us. It just seems like the environment lends itself to give jerks a pass in a way, you know, like, because I mean, you, you can say, um, look, most people can withstand a hard boss for a certain period of time. Right. And most people in the venture world are thinking, okay, if I, I got two or three years, I'm willing to be just abused because I got these options that I'm thinking. And then the boss feels the same way because they can, well, they, they have the options. They, you know, it's okay to treat them like kind of dirt. Um, and it's all about the money anyway. Um, I'm just curious, like, do you think that that model really does win? In other words, flipping it the opposite way you know, the same scenario where you have an exit, does treating people with integrity, responsibility, forgiveness, and compassion, do you think actually outpace, you know, pressure, money, all that kind of stuff? Uh, I mean, we, there's a book that, uh, the book that a lot of our research is based off of is called Return on Character. We named the fund after it. And they show the CEOs with the, that demonstrated these four characteristics outperformed leaders who 
to or the opposite uh, by like 5x as a return. But it wasn't in the venture world, you know? So I'm just, you know, I wa- I'll always wonder. I think, uh, so I would say a couple of things. Uh, so one of those is I think we have to be careful not taking A, the uh, extreme examples, the outliers um, mm-hmm. as the the rule, but being willing to accept that those are often exceptions, not the rule. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other thing is we have to be really careful that we don't caricaturize individuals. Um, so I think a great example of that is Steve Jobs. I think most people, average American, you would ask like, what was Steve Jobs like as a leader? Mm-hmm. They would say he was, you know, a, a dictator despot who just ordered people around, were super mean, treated everyone like garbage, um, and just ruled with an iron fist. But then if you actually read the best accounts of his life and you read a lot about how he led, especially the changes he made from like first rounded Apple to second rounded Apple, Pixar, the people he surrounded with, like you realize that he has been just made into a caricature of, we've That's taken this first round of Steve Jobs and he really wasn't that same person. He like learned, he matured, he developed, he, he honed down some of those rough edges. Um, and, and so I think you see that like often those people are, are, you know, a characterized or if they truly are a jerk, I think there are some who truly are just horrible people, uh, or not even horrible people, but just really bad leaders. Like they just do a lot of things wrong. I think they're not the rule. And so when I look at like building businesses that I want to last and be around for a long time, I think in most cases, uh, you're much better off. Simon Sinek has a thing about, you know, the power of building great teams around people who are maybe not quite as talented, but who are really easy to work with, who are honor, you know, honest and have integrity and ethics. Um, and talks about how the SEALs build, build teams that way of like, we don't just choose the most talented operators. We choose the people who are really talented, but who are also really easy to work with and collaborate with. And um, I think there's a lot of data that's out there that shows that people who are happy at work, uh, who enjoy being at work, work better. And I've built our businesses around those principles of like, we don't have drama, we don't point fingers, we don't have politics. uh, And we get a lot more done with a lot less people, uh, often than our competitors, because we just work to get rid of those things. So that's a great answer. Um, really thoughtful. Um, and I, I, I agree. I think that's probably the norm. Um, and people in general, I think are good and they're trying to, you know, lead yeah. to the best way, the best they can. What's the future for, um, pillow cube and where are you going next? Uh, do you have other products lined up? What, uh, it sounds like you, you're, you're a pretty busy guy. Um, and also like, yeah, tell us about Tell us about what you're doing next, or if you're just continuing with what you're doing already and and how people can learn about it. Yeah, so uh, we um, are continuing to build out. PillowCube now has mattresses and pillows. We have a tech product we're launching. So we're really fleshing out that full product line, and that's something that I really have found that I really love doing. I love being able to like, okay, here's this kind of beachhead that we used to get into the market. Now, how do we approach the market in a very different way? Uh, we're seeing that resonate with 
with um, with people in really amazing ways that traditionally in the betting space, you would go into a betting store and they would say, do you like firm or do you like soft? Um, and our whole pitch is the very first question should be, how do you sleep? Do you sleep on your side? Do you sleep on your back? Do you sleep on your stomach? Do you sleep on a mixture of those? And so we basically separated the industry out by saying, we'll take all the side sleepers, which is 70% of American adults, and we'll let everyone else fight over the back sleepers and the stomach sleepers. Uh, and so we've kind of separated that out. Um, so yeah, PillQ, we're continuing to innovate and really focus on building a company, learning from some of these other groups that have now struggled in the betting space because I think they thought, hey, we can build this massive, massive org and it's fine because we're just going to keep growing and growing will be infinite. Uh, and now they're, they've really hit some, some real road bumps. And so that's our focus. Uh, we've got a ton of exciting things. And then we're continuing to start new things, buy things, uh, buying businesses. Um, our, our incubator and fund is always busy. We just launched a nice cream brand that we're really excited about called Cold Case uh, that brings really high-end luxury ice cream right to people's doors and combines it with uh, a murder mystery kind of game. So excited to test that and try that out. Yeah. Where do you learn about that? Uh, so you can go to coldcaseicecream.com uh, and, and check that out. So we're, we're just getting going and uh, yeah, brought in some amazing investors and influencers and partners. So excited to, to just keep going on uh, new businesses. It's not too often that people actually are both innovators and executors. And uh, it sounds like you're both. Um, I, 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 the notion of creating beds for people that sleep on their side because 70% of the people in the world sleep on their side. I mean, what is a what is a side bed, a side sleeper bed look like? I mean, is it? Uh, I mean, I, I you go totally different directions, probably. Our first iteration is still looks like a traditional mattress. We've tried all kinds of crazy things. Uh, I think a lot of our process, and this is a process that we use, is whenever we're brainstorming, we we split up the brainstorming into two parts. Uh, and I and this is something that one of my one of the guys that I brought in as a partner at Creatively, his name's Damien, uh, that he taught and and kind of developed for us, is this idea that, uh, and I think it falls into how people think of brainstorming, but it, it's a much better structure. Traditionally, we say there are no bad ideas in brainstorming, uh, but we follow a model where the first half of a brainstorm, we only ask what ifs. We never, ever shoot down an idea. We never try and figure out how to pull off an idea. We never say, oh, it's too expensive. It's only what if, and if someone's not willing to what if, then they have to leave the room. Um, and so you get kind of a one strike and then you're out kind of policy. And we do that with clients and have asked CEOs, like, hey, if you if you keep yeah budding, uh, you're going to have to leave the room. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, so we for the first half, we just what if, we just let ideas like, really slow. We, Damien describes it as loving up every idea that someone throws out. So like before we cr criticize an idea, we let that idea be loved by the group. Like, oh, that's interesting. What if you did this? What if you did this? What if you did this? And you often end up in really interesting places that if someone had stopped that flow, that jumping of and connecting of dots, where you have some lateral thinking, where you're taking you know, an idea from engineering and then applying it to marketing, 
Um, if someone had been like, yeah, but that's not how marketing works. That's often how we've been able to develop and innovate. And that's really my focus on innovation is just what if and get, get over to this lateral thingy. And all of a sudden you have a really interesting idea and then you do the yeah, butting, or we often call it the, but howie. Uh, so you say, okay, that's awesome. Love that idea. But how do we do that? How do we pull that off? Um, and often if you do those, if, if you follow this methodology and separate those two things out, uh, you can land in some really interesting places. So we did that with mattresses and we got into some really interesting what ifs. Like what if you had a trough um, in the mattress that was like a, a cut where you put your arm uh, we talked to the insurance people and they were like, you'll be sued for sure. And someone will die and you'll, that's a horrible idea. We want to insure it. So, uh, so, so some of that, like you, we have the crazy what ifs and then we do the butt house of, okay, now run it through legal, now run it through, uh, through the, yeah. the compliance, run it through, you know, these other things. So the first iteration, we ended up just saying, if we're asking that question of how do you sleep? and focusing on what is the hardest problem to solve in, in sleeping, uh, by focusing there, uh, it really helped us know, like, how do we design this mattress? So I think the corollary that I often use is like, we now live in a world where 90% of a lot of traffic for us, 90 plus percent of our visitors are on the phone. So my web team does not design first for a computer, website and then for a mobile they design mobile first mm -hmm. and and by doing that we set kind of the right expectations from the beginning and so we applied that same idea or that same principle to mattresses why are we designing a mattress that works primarily for a back sleeper or for all types of sleepers when the hardest problem to solve because of the pressure points that exist in that type of sleep the hardest type of pro uh, sleep to address is side sleep because you go from like your front to your back or from your front or your back to your side this is where you have the most pressure points it's where you have the most nerves and so all of a sudden you it's a much harder problem to solve so we solved that problem first and then tested whether it worked uh on back and, and stomach and so what we came up with was a mattress that is much firmer in the hips uh because most people are shaped kind of like a carrot uh, and then much softer in the shoulder to accept that shoulder so that you actually aren't kind of, a lot of times when you're si sleeping on your side, you feel like you're a banana. You feel like you're like curved to the side because mm -hmm. it's so firm in the shoulders and so soft in the butt. Um, and so we flipped that on its head and that's the first iterations and people have really loved it. And we just keep innovating around that idea. Well, listen, I, I, um, I'm so grateful to know you, um, and I'm so grateful to have had the time to to learn from you. Um, I already am thinking about how it could, how what we talked about could be applied to my business, and um, and I love your perspective on uh, characters it relates to the venture world. It's encouraging, actually. So I just want to say thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for giving us a little bit of your time today, and keep innovating, man. Don't stop. Love it. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. I loved it. All right. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much.